This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Fight for Freedom, a memoir of my years in the civil rights movement. And the author is John Reynolds, and John joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, John. Hello, Steve. How are you? Well, great to have you with us. We're honored to have you with us. Uh, you were there at the beginning, uh, and we're going to talk about you meeting Dr. Martin Luther King and the role that you played in the civil rights movement back there. But let me read, kind of lay this, uh, set the foundation of our discussion, if you will. You say this, in the summer of 1965, an 18-year-old boy filled with frustration and anger at the injustices of the segregated society in his hometown of Troy, Alabama, volunteers to help civil rights workers sent to Alabama by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference as part of a campaign to register black people to vote. A few short months later, he finds himself in Atlanta being interviewed by Dr. Martin Luther King for a permanent position with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And as a young foot soldier in the civil rights movement, John Reynolds was an eyewitness to history. So this is your story, an eyewitness to history. Take us back, John. Uh, take us back to that first time you met Dr. Martin Luther King. You're 18 years young. Uh, what were you feeling? Well, I was, uh, uh, Steve, uh, nervous at uh, first as I uh, walked uh, towards his church uh, for the uh, interview. Uh, I was uh, in awe of, uh, of him, and uh, he was a hero uh, of mine, and, uh, and I never dreamed that uh, I would have the opportunity to, uh, to uh, see him, let alone meet with him one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, so I was just uh, in awe and uh, disbelief that... Uh, I was standing there in his uh, presence, and uh, it was uh, a moment that I will uh, never forget. Those of us who have never experienced segregation like it was back then in Alabama and other states in the South, uh, obviously you were feeling, I, you know, you used the term second-class citizen, and it was probably much worse than that, what you were feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I, I felt that, uh, and saw the lack of respect that was given, uh, uh, to people, uh, people like, uh, my grandmother, you know, and not being, uh, called by her, her name, uh, but, you know, was calling her girl and, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, she was, uh, an older woman and, uh, seeing her not being able to, uh, go to a restaurant and and uh and get food and and be able to to sit down was very uh frustrating and and uh and painful uh uh during those uh at those times you were angry 
Yes, I, I would say that I was uh, angry about uh, what I saw and uh, and just felt that something uh, needed to uh, to be done about it and that somebody needed to uh, speak up and uh, you know so that you know growing up on a, a, a plantation you was able to witness and see uh, things that was going on and how people was was treated or or mistreated, if you will, uh, you know, and that uh, you begin to see yourself as a commodity as opposed to uh, being a human being and a, a child of God. Now, when when did you feel that it was time to fight for what is right in order to bring about change? When did that occur? Was it before Doctor meeting Dr. Martin Luther King or after? It was before for me, uh, uh, Steve. Uh, it was that uh, uh, I was in high school, uh, uh, for example. I was unable to go to a library and uh, and sit down and, and study, uh, basically because uh, you know I was was black, uh, uh, and so it was those combination of of not being able to go to the library on a, on a personal level and, uh, and, uh, seeing, uh, how my parents, uh, was treated that sort of began that anger and that desire that somebody, uh, need to speak up and, 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 uh, and stand up and overcome their fear. So in 1964, uh, on the spur of the moment, I went to a restaurant and, uh, and sat down at a counter and requested to to be served, and uh, uh, and so that was my personal journey into speaking up and uh, and doing what I felt uh, uh, was right, uh, and uh, and this was in 1964. Uh, it was moments after the civil rights act. Uh, had passed, and uh, and so I felt that uh, that was my opportunity. Uh, that I was at that moment uh, should have been able to be legally served, uh, uh, like everybody else. So. Were you served? Uh, yes, I was served, but they closed the restaurant down. Hmm. Uh, they, they shut out all, all the lights and asked. Uh, the customers to leave because I just sat there and and waited and uh, they put uh, a sandwich on the paper plate and uh, uh, and so I sat there and ate my sandwich and when I was finished I uh, left and uh, it was uh, uh, a good feeling that you know, and basically, you know, Steve, when I go go home now, I, I go to this same restaurant and I see people sitting there and uh, it's, uh, it's a good feeling and sometimes I just laugh because people don't know, uh, you know, uh, what I did in, in, in 64. Hmm. Yes, if we, if we don't know our history... Uh, we don't know what's really going on. In fact, uh, if we don't know our, our history, we often repeat history, and we don't uh, stand up for what's right. Right. 
we we do. I, I mean, I think history is uh, is very important that we try to to learn uh, from history and uh, you know see what uh, went on in the in the past and and what uh, you know people did and and I think that's uh, you know one of the things uh, for me that I was somewhat of a history buff, so I, you know I sort of knew what uh, people did before, uh, you know. By looking at history, you you see uh, people who stand up and who who are truly uh, leaders, and uh, and hopefully that give you an insight in ter- in terms of what you should do uh, during your time. So you were there in some of those very hot spots at that time where there was a lot of action going on. Right. Absolutely. Uh, one of my early assignment was in uh, in Selma, uh, as you uh, remember, uh, Hosea William and John Lewis had tried to walk across the Edmund Pittis Bridge and uh, and was beaten uh, severely, and I think that was one of the moments that uh, sank into the conscience of uh, of America, you know, about how bad. Uh, you know, uh, situation was so uh, being in Selma and uh, uh, facing uh, Jim Clark uh, and his uh, horsemen uh, every day, and uh, uh, trying to get people to come off the plantation and and go to uh, the register to vote uh, was not uh, an easy job, but it was uh, you know something that uh, I was. Uh, uh, willing uh, to do, and uh, you know, hopping back to uh, for a moment in, uh, earlier, you know, in in tour where I uh, began in my hometown trying to help people to register uh, to vote, and uh, uh, and uh, you know, at that point in '65, you had to pass a literacy test and uh, and pay a poll tax, and even if you had a master's degree. It was not guaranteed that you was going to be able to pass the literacy test in order to uh, be able to uh, register and vote. And so uh, there were some uh, difficult uh, uh, days and some uh, violent days. And one of the things that I like to point out uh, is that uh, voter registration and the civil rights movement was not just about uh, black folks, uh, uh, black people, but it was for, you know, poor people and, and white people. And, and a number of, uh, you know, white people gave their lives, you know, and and, and Selma, like Valerie Luzo, um, a mother from Michigan who, who came to just try to help people to register to vote. And, uh, and she was uh, at the end of the... Selma to Montgomery March was uh, driving people back to Selma, and and her claim was that uh, she was driving with a young uh, uh, white male, uh, black male, in, in the front seat with her, and uh, and because of that, you know, her life was taken away. How did you first deal with this? sacrifice that you knew you were going to have to make uh, this dangerous situation you're eventually beaten many times you're jailed many times how did you how did you have the courage to 
step forward and and take a stand? Well, uh, Steve, I, I, you know, I guess I just felt that somebody had to do something, and and why not me? And uh, and I guess the initial thing, uh, my father wasn't uh, pleased, and uh, and when I started getting involved in, in my hometown, uh, he was very upset, and he beat at me uh, severely uh, for that. And so I guess in a way you might say that that helped prepare me for what was uh, uh, going to come. And, uh, and at that stage, uh, you know, I made the decision that I was going to uh, get involved in, in the movement and, and speak up. So the first thing, I lost my car uh, uh, and and I gave up my job. So almost immediately, those were some of the immediate consequences of me uh, sticking up. So when I joined LCLC, so I, I, I knew uh, uh, what was going to come and uh, and didn't have a, a permanent place uh, to stay. And uh, I knew that... Uh, that I would, you know, face uh, violence and uh, and possibly uh, be killed, but I was uh, willing uh, to do that. People organizing to make life better, to make changes in society. Uh, there's a lot of that going on today. Uh, make a comment about that. Well, I I, I think that is is important. Uh, Today, as it was uh, back in the sixties, that people come together and uh, work together for a common cause or for a common good. You know, put the interests of all all of the people before our individual uh, interests and 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 and, and challenge. And I, I particular, you know, look at uh, the movement in Asia. Uh, Egypt, you know, for example, where uh, people, uh, you know, brought down a government by using nonviolence and was able to uh, bring changes to the government. In uh, this country today, there's a, an occupied uh, movement uh, that's taking place that's trying to organize people and put issues uh, uh, before the country. Uh, only yesterday there was a report out about the fact that poverty is, is almost as at the level as it was uh, and, and the sixties. So there's a need for people to uh, come together and, uh, and, and work together and try to make life better for all of us. We've been listening to John Reynolds. He is the author of his book, The Fight for Freedom, a memoir of my years in the civil rights movement. John, tell us how to get your book. Uh, you can uh, uh, get uh, the book from uh, Arthur House. Uh, go on to uh, their website and then get the book there. It is also available on uh, Amazon uh, uh, and Barn and Noble online and uh, and it's also in ebook form. And they can also, you know, uh, purchase it through their local uh, bookstores and, and uh, retailers. John, thank you very much for being with us on Author Talk. 
Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamamanyhats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Life's Journey into Despair and Failure, The Anti-Life Controlling and Destroying Us. And the author, Edward Anar Halio. And Edward joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Ed. Hello. Good to have you with us. Uh, you've got very strong feelings about what's happening in your country of Canada, in the world in general. Let me read a few things that you've written so everyone understands uh, where you're coming from. You say, uh, you're, you talk about the brutal oppression of our humanities and the destruction of all other life and on the planet Earth. Uh, you talk about these organizations uh, they call themselves of uh, the same of the same or- origin and are connected are all about just really keeping us under their control. You talk about the rise of religious orders, degradation of women, how easy it is for these groups to terrorize an innocent evolving humanity into bondage. I mean, from your point of view, there is a obviously this anti-life. Uh, frame of mind in many people that are just trying to control the the world's population. Is that what you see? Well, I don't see it as controlling the world's population. They don't care about life. They, these organizations and the people that uh, populate them, 
they're disconnected. They're disconnected from you, from me, and uh, life has no value unless it has a dollar on it. If you can't put a dollar uh, sign on uh, on any life form at all, including the Earth itself, it has no value, and it's up for destruction. And it's up for destruction even if there is a dollar value placed on it. As you can see, you know, in the Gulf of, of Mexico there, it's going to happen up north now. Nothing matters. They're only their selves and what they want are important. Their, their positions of uh, supreme importance, and what I call a life of no toil. They don't work. They just, it's to, to me, they're just uh, entertaining themselves and we're the sport. Now, what has driven you to feel this way? You've been watching society for some time? Uh, since, uh, well, all my life, I, I started to notice things when I was, uh, just before I was a teenager. And I started to listen and started to pay attention, and I started to realize that uh, most people didn't, when they talked about something, they didn't know what they talked about. And if you try to uh, challenge them on it, they'd get angry, stuff like this, you know, adults versus children. Well, adult doesn't want to look like they're stupid. But anyway, the thing that really got me going was when I was, uh, uh, I don't know, around 13, 14, I started to wonder, why doesn't anybody know anything about the law? If the law is genuine, why isn't it taught in our schools? But it was never was, and it's it's made up as we go along. Uh, you know, it, uh, it you can go backwards in in, uh, in our uh, early history here, late history, whatever. And as they need a law to control us, they just make it, and they do as they please. And oh. because we're taught to believe in them, uh, well, then we go along with it. What about religion? What do you mean? Well, what role does religion play in all of this? Is it a well, factor? Religion, religion was the originator of it. The Like, if you go way back into, say, the caveman days or something like this, uh, the scariest dude there was the religious person. You know, they got whatever they wanted through fear. And uh, then you get a uh, you get a group of people that start to see that, hey, we can get this, we can get that. It's uh, Some people call it the criminal element. Well, they mass together, and once they mass together, you're in deep trouble because now they're going to force themselves on you. They won't talk nicely or anything. You see that in uh, you know, street gangs and everything else. What, what is the difference between a mafia and a government or a mafia and a religion? A, a mafia has a godfather. They have their soldiers, enforcers. There's no difference whatsoever, not from my point of view anyway. Now, your book starts with the formation of galaxies, uh, yeah, stars, yeah. planets, etc. Uh, why did you do it that way? You know, you, you talk about how life arose on Earth and how it spread and talked about dinosaurs and the formation of continents. Why did you start right from the beginning, so to speak? Because it's about life. And uh, to try to get people, uh, see, like, uh, you can't jump into the middle of something. Like, if I would have started something like uh, talking about governments and that, it wouldn't really make any sense because it doesn't, there's no explanation or anything about how they came about. So there'd be no beginning, there'd be a middle thing, but then there'd be no end to it. And, and this is a, 
it's like a quagmire that uh, anybody that's ever tried to challenge them has always been stuck in because there was no beginning for them and no end because religion and that dominated their thinking and wouldn't allow anything else. Who was it, Copernicus or whatever? As soon as they started going against the, you know, the, the establishments or whatever or the doctrines, they were going to be imprisoned and everything else. But you have to have a starting point and if I'm going to talk about life, I have to start at what I believe is the beginning. I understand that, you know, the, how, how the uh, galaxies formed and that that's conjecture. You know, I, have, I can't prove that. But the thing is, as it, as it progresses and how life spread around the Earth, I think a lot of the stuff that we get from our scientists is wrong. Whatnot. And, uh, and it's because these people have no superior intellect over you or me. They are, they go to school and they're uh, they, they study books or whatever it is, and then they come out and they regurgitate what they what they've studied. I call it plagiarism. Now the thing is, if the information that they're studying is wrong, where does that leave them when they come out? Who's going to challenge them? And everything just keeps going the same you know around the same old circles. And once in a while, somebody different comes up with a different slant of mind comes along and they start to see there's something wrong in there and they try to change, you know, the information and that and they're, they're almost stonewalled. And when it comes to uh, bringing out anything new or anything like this, it, it goes against society's beliefs. Well, you know, it's really difficult, whatnot. But I had to. I figured I had to start it, get it going, and then uh, move into uh, the uh, the part about uh, humanity. And uh, that's the way I see it, anyway. And one of the fatal weaknesses of humans, you say, the human mind. It is. You can do you can do anything with the with the mind. All you got to do is make sure you get it when it's in its vulnerable state, as in childhood, and uh, early adolescence and whatnot. Like, let's say, for example, uh, uh, a government wants soldiers. Well, the, they go to the uh, 16-year-old boys, all these boys here. I know women are in there now, but uh, years ago it was all it was all male. So they went to the 16-year-olds and they started making up these phony stories about how heroic it was and, you know, you'd be heroes and this and that and all the rest. And so the young guys, they're coming into uh, adulthood, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, manhood, and all teenage guys, want to prove themselves that they're a man. And they'll go for this because, hey, there's nothing more uh, impressive or whatever it is uh, that they're taught than violence. You know, if you can kill your opponent, man, you're, you're basically godly, you know, whatever. And uh, they get them caught up in this, and you see that in the Middle East right now where they do the same thing with those young boys over there. They're young teenagers. They poison their minds and everything else. They make up lies about this side of the world. We make up lies about their side of the world, and away it goes. And it's not going to stop. Not unless the truth is out there. It comes out anyway. How and when did the brutality against women begin, and why? Well, women were always, uh, uh, as far as I was concerned, they were always... uh, higher up in society because they brought forth life. 
and there's no man in the world that could ever bring forth life. But the ones, that, you know, the, the males that aren't threatened by this, you know, it's okay with them. But then you got that segment of males that are threatened because they want to be important and whatnot. And as soon as they realized they could terrorize people to get what they want, they went after that position of supreme importance, and they forced uh, women out of it. And they started to say, well, it's me that puts the life into you type of thing. And, like, uh, have you ever heard of uh, uh, an author, uh, uh, a Canadian author? Her name is Kira Van Dusen? No. Well, she's been going around the world uh, trying to collect what's left of uh, folklore and whatnot. But there's a pattern, it doesn't matter what culture she goes to, but as she goes around the world, their ancient cultures will talk about, you know, uh, the, the women are, are low, they're, they're, no, they're worthless, stuff like this. It's the man that's, you know, the, the, the hero and all the rest of this, and it's just not true. But that's how it got going, and once they were deposed, well, men took over childbirth and everything else like it was their right to do so, you know. And it still goes on. Now, you've touched a little bit. To me, in a hospital, a male doctor shouldn't be in there with a woman when a woman's having a child. they got no business in there. Hmm. You know? They don't don't understand what the woman's undergoing or feeling or anything else. Good point. For outsiders looking in. Right, right. You mentioned a little bit uh, about money at the beginning, but you also say, uh, you talk about this erroneous belief in money that comes yeah. to take possession of our humanities. Now, give us a little bit more on that. Okay, we, it comes back to uh, a, a community living socially, okay? Everybody helps everybody. Everybody's getting you know, what they want. There's absolutely no need for money. This is what's, what's called bartering, I guess. And uh, But these people, these gangs come along, and they want what you have, but they're not going to produce anything because they will not work or anything else, and they want to, you know, they want to dominate. There, there's that real nasty part of, of this is they want to dominate all life, all the time. So anyway, to get what they want, they either have to kill you to force you to get it, and they know that can't, they can't maintain that, so they got to get you to believe in something else. And then once, uh, once they uh, forced uh, humanity into digging for gold and everything else, because those people knew it was there, but it's a useless. You can't do anything with gold. You can't shoot diamonds. You know, it's, you can't use it as a food or a building material or anything. But they adorn themselves in this, and they get to look flashy. And just uh, all it takes is a generation or two, and... After you've uh, you know done away with the ones that offer you resistance, like uh, the adult males and stuff like this, and, and the older teenage boys, you get rid of them, and who's left? The women and the children, and uh, now you start putting the poison in their head, and they start looking at, oh yeah, you know, I can be like this, I can be just like them, and here you go, the golden, uh, the golden that becomes uh, a currency, and now they, there's, there's very little of it that you can put in your physically put in your hand. So they may, they force the people in uh, to start digging, digging for something that they never would have wasted their time with to get whatever it is you want to allow them to have, you know. And, uh, and that's, why, that's why in history uh, currency has changed. It goes, you know, uh, you had uh, jewels, diamonds, gold, silver, 
and it just keeps bouncing all over the place. You know, it's to me, it's just a, a, an avenue or whatever it is that they can use to control every aspect of their life. And if we start to live too good, that means we start to live like them, and they can't have that. So they have to put taxation on you to pull that money away from you to drive you back down into poverty or near poverty anyway. But, not, but the money's an illusion. We, we don't need it. Never did. But it's forced on us now. Let's close on a very broad question, or at least the answer is very broad, to this very uh, deep question in which you address. Uh, and I think it'll make sense to people when I ask it. What is the purpose of life, Ed? To exist. I know that's not much of an answer, but, uh, you know, there's two things in life. There's life, and then there's the anti-life. Now, I belong to life, so I want to keep life going. And uh, as far as trying to put any more behind that, uh, hey, this guy just ain't smart enough, you know. I don't know enough about the universe and how it all came about and everything else, but our purpose is to continue, is for continuation and if that's not the purpose, then why do any of this? And I think, as you pointed out before, we can help each other. We can help each other. Yeah. And we don't need to be caught up in all this stuff and, and money and land and everything else. That's right. And, and if, when you talk about land and whatnot, who gave these organizations the right to claim the earth as their property? Yeah. And all the life within it. Right. Or on it. You see, it, it's all just, it's all gang oriented. They just happen to be huge now and, and whatnot. But uh, see, there's one natural thing in life, and that is fear. And that is put into all living entities or whatever you want to, beings or whatever you want to call them. It's, it's that part of survival. And uh, as soon as you threaten uh, any living entity, it wants to get away from what's threatening it well that's what humans do as soon as these organizations threaten they cower right away and now we're taught to cower and we're mm-hmm. taught to go to our knees we've been listening to edward anar halio and ed has a book titled life's journey into despair and failure the anti-life controlling and destroying us ed tell us how to get your book uh the only way I know is you got to go to uh, Author House. Okay, definitely go to AuthorHouse.com. And, and yeah, and I guess it must be on eBay too or something. I don't. I'm not a computer person. So right. Well, it's, it's a, if people can order your book through any online book retailer or even walk into a bookstore and they can order it, so it's it's there. Yeah. Well, Ed, thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. Okay, I got one question for you about books. Did you ever read that book, uh, 1984? Oh yes, many years ago. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, how'd you like it? Well, it was uh, rather uh, terrifying. <laughs> yeah, but we're almost there. Yeah, we are. I I agree with you. We are. Okay. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. 
Have you been laid off, fired, downsized, right-sized, or re-engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, president of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search, physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, TrishaGoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Becoming a Better Marriage Partner, A Gift for Your Marriage. And the book can be ordered from Author House or other online retailers like Barnes & Noble or Amazon. And the authors are... Stephanie Stokes and Professor Larry Jensen. And Professor Jensen joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Professor Jensen. Well, hello, and I'm glad to be here. We're glad to have you with us. We always uh, need to take a very strong look at how we can become a better marriage partner. That is the key. It always starts with the person. It always starts with the individual, right? Well, yes, and and I, I've, a good beginning is to say the best way to become a better marriage partner is to become a better person. And the best way to become a better person is to become a better marriage partner. So it's for the book is meant for both, to just become a better marriage partner and a better person. So it sounds like that old chicken-egg problem, uh, which comes first, the chicken or the egg. That's what it sounds like. But you really focus on changing lives, don't you? Well, that's what I want to do for your listeners today. Uh, of course, I'm interested in them finding and reading my book, but just as important as to let's hope we can do some good for somebody as they listen to us today. Give us a little bit about your background, Professor Jensen. Well, I've uh, spent my time in the university as a researcher, but focusing on family and marriage, and children, and moral development. I've taught at, uh, well, at Michigan State when I was a 
graduating there and then at New York State, Utah State, and Brigham Young University. Now, we don't have a lot of time today. Uh, we have a short time. Uh, so you mentioned becoming a better person as well as becoming a better marriage partner. Uh, that is the focus. It is. And uh, I try to lay a foundation that is unique and different than what ordinarily you find in marriage books. Uh, of course, uh, a lot is said about becoming a better marriage, uh, building a better marriage. Uh, too often uh, you you say self-growth, self-development, dimension, or opportunity is often overlooked. How did you come up with that notion? Well, what I, I see is that in our modern society, we think a person is just a body and a brain um, that's been shaped by an environment. What I think is important to emphasize is that we have an inner self, a spirit. There's something within us that makes choices, and we choose. And by our choices, we become the kind of person we will be in the future. So I think we, we start with believing that we have an inner self. And, of course, and, uh, go ahead. Well, and this inner self is what we're going to try to improve and marriage gives many opportunities to improve yourself by becoming good. And becoming good is another key concept that uh, I think we should build our marriages on and the, and the foundation for becoming a better person. And you mentioned that often when couples uh, come to you, uh, they, want, uh, they want to fix the other person. Yes, I learned that from a marriage counselor. It's my friend. And he told me that almost all his couples come in and they want to fix the other person. And it's very obvious that the best way, to, the, the sure and secure way to proceed is to fix yourself. And then uh, the other person will be more likely to come around. Now, you talk about being good. Can you be specific or show the way to be good? I, I do, and uh, let me give it right now. I think... In order to be good, you, you need to put the needs of at least one other person ahead of your own needs. Now, of course, you can put the needs of many people ahead of your needs, then so much the better. But at least you need to be able to put one person ahead of yourself. If you don't, we usually call this a selfish person or a self-centered person. And um, in psychology, there's often the um, phrases used uh, other-oriented. If you want to be happy and satisfied in life, you need to become more other-oriented rather than self-oriented or selfish. And you talk about your first chapter, Begin by Understanding What We Are. Yes, and I guess we could just kind of proceed to the table of contents, but what we are is we are an, a choosing entity, or we are a, a self we have a mind, we have a spirit, and we can choose what we are to become. And those choices, I see, is built around being able to put someone, at least one other person, ahead of yourself to become less selfish and self-centered. So how do, and, uh, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we focus on that other person? Um, well, 
I hate to skip to the last chapter, but I'm going to do it right now. In my opinion, you need to constantly, uh, even on little matters, ask, what is a good thing for me to do? If you ask that question and then listen for an answer, when you get the answer and then act upon it, you will every day become a better person. So there are answers, there, and they will come. Yes. Um, I also put in Chapter 3 a little bit about conscience. And, you know, we don't um, maybe pay enough attention to conscience, but throughout all history, there's been, and scholars from the Asian scholars to the modern scholars, do use the word conscience to refer to somehow something within us tells us what is good. Uh, I think it's really important to listen to your conscience and let your conscience be a guide in your marriage. Well, that's uh, an old saying, isn't it? Let your conscience be your guide. And it sounds so simple, and I guess a lot of people just don't listen, and they overlook that. You know, I don't know whether they listen to their conscience or if the conscience is in them or part of them, but we do, we are able as humans to ask the question, what is a good thing to do? And in my experience and reading, uh, if you will ask that question, what is a good thing for me to do? You'll get an answer. The answer won't be the same for every person, but you will get an answer. And if you consistently listen to that answer and follow it, you will become a better person. And as you become a better person, you'll become a better marriage partner. As you... Within, within marriage, there's all kinds of opportunities each day to ask, what is a good thing for me to do? It might be about cooking a meal. It might be about working on the family budget. It might be taking a turn with the children. It might be listening to your partner while they're sick um, or sharing something you like or being willing to give up something you have for the other person. There's... There's just no better lab in the world to become a better person than to be in a marriage. As you have been talking, uh, come to my mind uh, that famous uh, statement by Jesus Christ who talked, was asked what's the greatest commandment. Of course, he said, you know, the first one is to love God. But the second one, it seems to be concerning your neighbor of course that neighbor could be your spouse love your neighbor as yourself i guess that's what you're trying to focus on here i think it's perfectly consistent uh, i don't um refer to uh, real religious sources in the book but you can obviously see that there's that connection um and another thing i i like to point out is that is this whole business about change a lot of people, when they ask, what is a good thing to do, they're not willing to change themselves. And just like when the, uh, the couples come in, they want to fix the other, but change is just part of our natural world. Everything changes. Uh, rivers change, uh, mountains change, weather changes, and nothing changes more than people change each day. Well, I think that word change, I once heard someone say, if you want things to change, you've got to change. If you want things to get better, you've got to get better. I guess that sums it up. 
Yeah, if I had that quote, I'd put it in my <laughs> book. Uh, but you will be a different person tomorrow, and if you will welcome that change instead of fighting against changing, um, you can then direct and choose the kind of change you want to have in your life. And I think the most important change is that change to be a better person, a good person. Yeah. That, that, of course, relates to the next chapter, if you don't mind me just Please. talking about my book. Please. The next chapter is on expanding your identity. And, you know, we all seek different kinds of identity, like to be famous or important or rich or the best athlete, uh, a musician. And you, you create an identity like this, but even if you were to achieve one of these, well, meaningful, desirable types of identities, you wouldn't be happy unless underneath that you were first a good person. So what I think is, as you try to establish your identity, you need to have an identity of being a good person first and see how that fits in with a now, it seems that the next chapters are more specific and focus on the practical, what to do. Is that what you're trying to set before us? Well, once, if you, if you accept the idea that you can direct your future because you are a choosing self and you welcome change, then you will try to put the needs of another person ahead of yourself. And, of course, that moves you right into uh, becoming a loving person. And uh, I have some chapter titles in number in A, if we skip ahead to that, it says, rather than trying to make others more lovable, become more loving yourself. And another one is your best experiences will be what you did for others, not what others did for you. Or in marriage, use as little power as possible. And then one about forgiving, where... You know, we always think we'll forgive the big mistakes, but we have a harder time forgiving the little mistakes that come each day. So those are the, some examples of the kind of things that um, I present in How to Love More, Love Better. Now, you have an unusual title. It says, Be an Artist, Not an Analyst. What are you getting at here? Well, you know, in modern pop psychology and we often try to analyze people, and, and uh, when we analyze them, we put them in the categories or typologies. Then once we got the person typed, we try to see what kind of things you do to people like this. That's when you are an analyst. I think a better approach, well, I think the, the real approach to, to be an understanding person is to be an artist. And by that I mean you use all the kinds of information and knowledge you can gain and then you create what you understand to be the person in front of you. You, instead of trying to reduce the person, you try to create the person by seeing the strengths, the, the goodness in your partner. Uh, I use the word partner because it's so easy to see how you can do this with a marriage partner, a wife, or a husband. I, I think after I explain this, I, I'll read a little bit on page 58 when, to explain why being an artist 
when you try to look at another person. Um, when using approaches to understanding a person, combining them all together, even with scientific principles, you're engaged in a very complicated and creative endeavor. Those that are good at doing this are true artists. It is not done with a formula, but with wisdom, creative insight, and even intuition. And you kind of finish off your book with a couple of chapters. Uh, you have one titled Love More, Love Better. That's where I try to give some practical hints on how to do this. Um, one of the, uh, um, one of the, this might be interesting, is often we, say, we look at couples and we see that one person loves another more than is loved back. But in true love, the one that gives more love is really the stronger person and the one more likely to be happy. So I say, don't feel sorry for the person who's loved less, but loves more. And let's finish off with a repeat of your last chapter. You've mentioned it, but we have a, about a minute left. Why don't you wrap up with your last chapter? Well, if there's just one single thing to do to become a better person or a better marriage partner, it is to ask, at each little tiny point in your life, what is a good thing for me to do? Now, and if you do this, you always get an answer, and then you can act upon that answer and you become a better person. If you're a religious person, you might ask the same thing by asking, what would God have me do? But if you're always asking, what is a good thing to do, you certainly, you can't guarantee you're going to have a perfect and a wonderful marriage, but you, I can guarantee that you'll become a better person. So I think that's the main conclusion of the book. And you can guarantee that you will get answers when you ask a question. <laughs> yes, you'll get an answer, and everybody will if they ask that question. And um, it may be that, that um, you might have to read the book to get the full picture. Um, it's called Becoming a Better Marriage Partner, and the, only, the place to get it is at, well, I guess you can get it at uh, Barnes & Noble and also at AuthorHouse.com. Well, very good, Professor Jensen. Uh, Larry C. Jensen, uh, he is the author of his book, along with Stephanie Stokes, Becoming a Better Marriage Partner, a Gift for Your Marriage. Professor Jensen, thanks so much for being with us on Author Talk. Well, I enjoyed it. I hope somebody gained something listening to our chatting for a few minutes. And you can get the book, Becoming a Better Marriage Partner, at AuthorHouse.com or other online retailers like Amazon and Barnes & Noble. 